Ultimate Escape is a family-friendly ministry that addresses sexuality. Some episodes may contain sensitive terms and subject matter, especially for younger children. Hello and welcome to the Ultimate Escape Podcast. I'm David Chenault. This is our second episode of the Ultimate Escape Podcast, a God-centered perspective on healthy sexuality. If you'd like more information about Ultimate Escape or all the projects that they are involved in, you can find more on our website at ultimateescape.org. Today we're going to talk with Holly Holiday, a co-founder of Ultimate Escape, and she will address the comical nature of her name. But of course, more importantly, she's going to share her story and how brokenness in her life concerning sexuality affected not just herself, but her family and those around her that she loved. It, of course, dovetails with her husband Steve's story, co-founder of Ultimate Escape. You can listen to that story as well. He shares that in the very first edition of our podcast. You can find more at podcast.ultimateescape.org. Let's visit now with Holly Holiday. So today we're speaking with Holly Holiday. Uh, hello to you. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you are okay. So Steve Holiday's wife, mm-hmm. obviously. Yes. Um, uh, you are the one of the co-founders of Ultimate Escape. Yes. I mean, this has turned into a life work for you guys together. It's uh, tell me a little bit about how how it's changed your life uh, and your excitement for this life. Probably the largest way it's changed my life is that I speak in public. I was one of the few freshmen who ever entered into college at a certain private institution who somehow missed taking speech class the very first semester. I didn't register. Nobody noticed. And I was extremely relieved. Um, Very much had a fear of speaking in public, but also as an adult, looking back on my teenage years, realized that there was a vast um, lack of people talking about the things that I struggled with. Sure. And I remember all the nights of going to bed crying and absolutely hating myself and feeling like I was a complete fake, that I didn't ever want anyone else to feel that way. Sure, sure. So it took, it was not like a night and day transformation. It was a process like most of the hard things are. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Yeah, that's like a tangible way it has changed is that now we speak together. And when we do, you know, I I feel very comfortable doing that. There have been a couple of times I've spoken by myself, probably have more anxiety leading up to those. But again, they tend to go, they have gone well. So that's a big difference. Um, excitement wise, it's interesting that you use that word because I don't know that I would have used like excitement. Right. I think it's more um, a calling, uh, a drive. And that goes back again to all the hurt that I lived in that no one else knew about. And then even in our marriage, because we have a pretty interesting, (laughs) to to say the least, story about our marriage and the way that God really healed that. I don't want anybody else to feel the way that I felt. Uh, The most alone I've ever felt is living in a house with a husband and four kids. And so it's those experiences that kind of compel me to be involved in this ministry and to actually go out and get out of my comfort zone and get up on a stage and talk out loud. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to get into that. We want to get into some of these experiences that really drive and shape. Um, and I guess a lot of ways experiences uh, drive and shape all of our lives. It just right. kind of depends on how we respond to those and how mm-hmm. we work through those. Um, but I got to ask right off the start, I just, everybody that I've mentioned you uh-huh. to, uh, they always say, okay, so at what point did you realize, oh no, 
if I marry this guy, it's going to be Holly <laughs> Holiday. That was the first time he came home from college with me, and we were just you know friends at that point, and I'll use quotation marks. Um, and my mom pulled me to the side, and she said, "So are you guys serious?" And I said, no, mom, we're just friends. She said, good, because your name would sound like a pole dancer or a street walker. (laughs) And I was simultaneously died laughing, but was shocked because I didn't know that my mother knew what either of those things were. You know, it's not like those were regular words that came out of her her vocabulary. So, and that made me think about it and had never been one of those people who's like, I'm going to keep my baby name. But I did think about it. I think it was maybe five or six years before I would introduce myself as Holly Holiday. I would wait. Steve would introduce himself and say, hi, I'm Steve Holiday," And I would say, hi, I'm his wife, Holly. And I would leave. I would leave the rest out. That's great. I never actually I never considered the pole dancing aspect of that, but you are yep. correct. Yeah. And to wind up talking about sexual issues for the, for the rest of <laughs> Maybe my mom is prophetic. There you go. There you go. So how many years have you guys been married now? Um, 25 and a half. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about this. Obviously, the, the, the kids you talk to, the adults that you talk to, mm-hmm. the people that you work with in terms of working through sexuality, sexual issues, sexual um, behaviors, um, relationship-wise. And, and I used excitement earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the word passion would be a better word yes, for this. Yes, yes. That's probably a much more accurate word for me. Passions don't mm-hmm. just develop overnight. They, they come right. out of a sense, and as you mentioned earlier, come out of a sense of our experience or come out of our experiences mm-hmm. from before. So uh, take us back. Uh, kind of walk us through the story of where your experiences came from mm-hmm. and, and how um, they brought you along to where, um, and eventually where, where you are today. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was saved when I was six or seven years old, and I vividly remember that day. I remember the fact that he was baptized, and I remember the immediate difference in him as a person. Um, he was a great guy before. But he was so much different after that. So from that point forward, had two very um, committed parents that loved Jesus, were there every time the church doors open. We did the joy bus ministry, if you're old enough to remember that. So not only was I at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I was also on the joy bus an hour before and after for every one of those services. Um, so a lot of activity around church. Don't ever want to despise kind of my my um, spiritual upbringing, my heritage, because from a very early age, I loved Jesus. I never questioned that. I never questioned whether or not he was real. Always loved him and always wanted to please him. Now, the church I grew up in was great about having activities and doing things, um, probably a little bit lacking in the whole discipleship aspect. So I knew I wanted to be a Christ follower. I didn't really know how to be a Christ follower as a firstborn, definitely had that drive to be a people pleaser, perfectionist. I'm way recovered in most aspects at this point. <laughs> yeah. you, you've changed that part of your... <laughs> I, I like to say I am a recovering people pleaser. I don't care now. I, I just really don't care. <laughs> and I think once you pass a certain age, like maybe 40, that I don't care button gets a lot larger. Right. You just really don't care what other people right. think. But, you know, as a child, it was very important to me. And so I received some messages that I could never quite measure up, that I wasn't smart enough. And just and most of that just um, revolved around the enough idea. Was it smart enough? Wasn't pretty enough? Wasn't thin enough? You fill in the blank. You know, I think I went through a lot of the different 
deficiencies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. So had that kind of plan in the background. Then about 12 or 13, I began to mature and really felt kind of like the ugly duckling that transformed into something that was not quite so ugly anymore. And I started to all of a sudden get attention from guys based on the way I looked. And I really liked that. And I think that began to fill a hole in my life that I didn't even realize I had. Now, I was a Christian at this point, been baptized, you know, very much still loved God, wanted to do the right thing. But I still had this emptiness that I didn't quite know how to feel. And so guys began to feel that. I started with just attention, eventually would move on to what I jokingly call outer course. Steve laughs at me when I say that, but not intercourse, but outer course. Oh, yeah. Well, gotcha. <laughs> right, right. I think the good old 70s and 80s Church of Christ term was heavy petting. Is that the, I think that was the official term. Right. Um, but to me, outer course just covers all of that. That's, that's like first through third base, isn't that right? Is that where we're yes. talking? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The infield. Yeah. We're just yeah. not. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's it. So, um, and always had not only not always, but the majority of the time, not only had a boyfriend, but had a couple or a couple that I'd kind of identified as backups. Sometimes had more than one at one time, just this need to always have someone else to make me feel complete uh, is the only way I know to explain that. That obviously did not set me up to walk a very, <laughs> a very easy path as I got older. And at the ripe old age of 14, I began dating a guy from the next town over. Now, I was 14, but I had skipped a grade earlier in my elementary school years. And so I was much younger than the rest of the people in my class. So he was not that much older than me in grade, but in age, you know, I was 14, he was 17. So he's from the next town over, a well-known family, has older brothers, sisters that everybody knows. And from all outside appearances, seem to be, you know, very good kids, very well respected. Not a lot of people would have anything negative to say about them. Um, began dating him, and because he could drive, was allowed to just go, you know, wherever by ourselves, which in hindsight was probably not a great idea. And he began very quickly to start to pressure me to do things sexually that I was not okay with. So he was going to move past the outer course. And I can't remember, I've tried to go back and remember how quickly all of that took place, and I really can't. I know I began dating him, I think, in like summer, and I turned 15 in the fall. So somewhere between that time, we began being sexually active. Now, when I say that, it kind of misrepresents what happened because I never really wanted that to happen. And I was extremely uncomfortable with what was going on. But I think back and I hear where I remember hearing words like, well, I can't help myself. Well, I have to do this. Well, I can't stop. And to me, that doesn't sound like someone who's consensual. That sounds very coerced. So lived in that for probably two and a half to three years off and on was extremely miserable. I hated what was going on. I had some very warped theology at that time. And so I felt like because we had been sexually active with each other, that now I could never break up with him. Like we had to stay together forever. We would have to eventually get married. Mm. Um, and I had basically no out. I also lived in fear that someone else would find out. And if they found out, it would be my fault. Because, see, I put his family kind of in the ranking of life quite a bit higher than I put mine, which is ridiculous. But 
you know, that's how a 14 year old thinks. And so I felt like if anyone ever found out, it would come back to, well, look at you, you corrupted our child. So I never told anybody what was going on, you know, on a regular basis, pretty much. Then he eventually left to go to college and I was in my senior year of high school and we had broken up, but he still wanted to try to control me. I'm actually pretty emotionally abusive. Um, would try to tell me what I could do, what I couldn't do. He would show up, you know, he was supposed to be in school far away and he, he would show up at my house. Like things would appear in my mailbox, probably a little bit stalkerish. And I didn't recognize that at the time. Right. Um, it did kind of creep me out. I, I will say that, but didn't recognize it for exactly what it was. Was there a sense of, cause you mentioned <laughs> earlier, uh, you felt like, uh, uh, okay, you're sexually active, so you, you can never break up. You can, right. this is, this is going to be it forever. Right. And then the point comes along where you do break up. How does that play in your psyche in terms of, uh, you know, the world is crashing down around? I would say that was, first of all, a very warped dynamic. And I hope people who hear me realize that. I think for some time I felt like a failure. Because not only have I done this terrible, awful thing, because see, growing up in the denomination I did, sex was never presented as a good thing in the right parameters. It was just a, this is wrong, don't ever do it. And that was it. Not a whole lot of teaching on how you keep yourself from doing that or how you, how wonderful it can be in the right parameters. It was just, this is bad. So I had that already playing. So then to break up, It did add to that for a while, but this was not a super pleasant relationship. Everything was extremely dramatic and drawn out, and it was just always such a drag that at some point you get uncomfortable enough that you're okay with doing even the thing that you think you can't do, like be broken up. I like to say when I speak that you know, if you get uncomfortable enough, when you hurt enough, you'll justify anything. And I think that's very true. So I think that's how I made that leap from, okay, we've had sex with each other. We can never, ever break up to, I just can't deal with you anymore. This is sucking the life out of me. Um, not only spiritually, but physically, you know, it just, it was a a definite drag, uh, not a lot of fondness, to remember that whole entire time of my life. So you break up. Um, mm-hmm. He's he starts this uh, pseudo stalker kind of yeah uh, behavior, and so you decide what it's uh, you're going to have to take more dramatic steps or more I clear. Wish, <laughs> I wish I had. Uh, an interesting thing to know about me is I come from a family who is very good at image maintenance. I knew that there was a certain way I was expected to behave. And there were certain ways that we dressed and that we didn't dress. And don't make a scene because you don't ever want to make a scene. We just don't make a scene. So that's just part of my personality. So I am at a football game one night in the fall when I'm a senior. He's supposed to be far away at school. And he shows up at the game. So this guy shows up and I try to just kind of ignore the fact that he's there. I was I was. I had another boyfriend kind of on the side. We were talking. I don't think we were dating yet, but we kind of, we'd been on some dates and my word, it was fun. You know, it didn't have all this drag from this previous relationship. It was just fun. This was a new experience for you. Yes, it was. It was. And so I don't know if the word had gotten out. I don't know why, but, but, you know, other boyfriend showed up or ex-boyfriend, he showed up and began to 
after the football game say, I really, really need to talk to you. And I just said, no, I don't think I'm going to speak to you. I don't really have anything else to say. And he kept on and on. And I even tried then to say, you know, I know what you want to do and it's not talk and I'm not interested. And so then it kind of ramped up a little bit. And now remember, I don't like a scene and I'm, you know, that kind of Boy Scout first child personality. Mm -hmm. And so I finally said, well, I'll go talk with you, but that's it. And so I left with him, you know, got in his vehicle. And that night I recognized what happened as rape. And he did. He raped me. And I knew it when it happened. All this other stuff leading up to it, I carried tremendous amounts of guilt about and felt so responsible for. But in hindsight, to hear words like, I can't help myself. I just have to do this. All along, I was being abused. I don't think I recognized it until that night. And that night, I knew it. And I remember saying, I remember specifically saying no. And it happened anyway. And then he had the nerve to say, would you like to go get something to eat? And I remember just thinking, how can you say that? You know, you have just violated me. You have just forced me to do something that I did not want to do. And you want to go eat. And see, to this day, it it, it makes me emotional. That night after it's over, mm-hmm. um, do you fall apart? Do you maintain mm-hmm. the image? <laughs> A little bit of both of those. Outwardly, you maintain the image. One person, one of my really good friends, tried to talk to me the next day, and I don't remember what I said. And I know it wasn't intentional because, again, I want to keep the secret at all cost because it will make me look bad. But whatever I said, she out of the blue said, Holly, did he do something to you? And I was so shocked that she figured it out because I thought I hit it so well that I just didn't answer. I literally did not say anything. And we were on the telephone, so she couldn't even see my face. And she said, well, that tells me what I need to know. And so she made a phone call and spoke with him. And the next thing I know, I get a call from this guy that says, and I quote, I don't know what you think happened, but you better keep your mouth shut. And that was it. And so I never, it was years before I told anybody else. Inside, definitely, I think I fell apart. Because from that point on, you know, remember that leading up to this guy, I've had this string of boyfriends that, you know, probably did more with than was wise. Um, Never had sexual intercourse with any of them. But it led up to that with this other guy. So I very much had the view that any guy that was interested in me was only going to be interested in me because of what I look like or for my body. That was it. And I remember making a very clear, not like a pact with myself, but I remember just saying, I will never, ever be a victim again. I will never be a victim. And so if anything's going to, if guys are going to want to have sex with me, then I'm going to pick who it is and where it is and how it happens. I will not be forced ever again. So on the outside, everything looked fine. I did carry on. But I think inside, there's a very clear change. The only way I know to explain it is to say, at that point, I had what's called a promiscuous attitude. If I say I became very promiscuous, I think that overstates what happened. Um, because the truth is, I was only sexually active with one other person. But my attitude was, I'm not going to let anybody else take advantage of me. So 
this is what is expected with anybody I date. So I'm just going to pick how it happens. And that's how I behaved and dated this guy that was super fun the rest of my senior year. And he was older than me, so he was not in high school. And that was nice because it was not the drama of of high school life. So then that summer before I got ready to go to college, um, one of my really good guy friends, I mean, we'd never dated. Nothing had ever happened. We were just good friends all through high school. He called me one night and said, hey, do you want to meet me in town? And I did. And typically we would like go somewhere and eat or we would drive around and listen to his super big sound system that took up the whole back seat of his large car, you know, that kind of stuff. And instead we drove out to the middle of nowhere and I was kind of surprised. And when I said, what are we doing out here? He basically said something to the effect of, well, I just thought, you know, we would do something. And I was like, do something what? And he's like, well, you do that with everybody else. So why not me? And that just broke my heart. Because, again, I feel like I've kept all this so under wraps. Now, all this time I'm going to church. I'm very involved in the youth group. My parents, this was back before, you know, we had a youth minister. And so my parents were the people who did all the youth stuff. So led a very, a very weird double life in that aspect that I tried to keep everything, you know, segregated and compartmentalized. And that I'm not very good at that. You talked about early on having this hole mm-hmm. that you didn't even really know you had. Um, how common is that? Off the top of my head, I would say I've never met a person who has not struggled with that in some way or another. Now, obviously not everybody has tried to fill that need the way I have. Some people fill it with status, you know, with I've got to be, I've got to be a cheerleader. My identity is wrapped up in that. And if I don't make the cheerleading team, I'm, I don't know who I am. Or it's wrapped up in status uh, in a kind of a different way. And you've got to have the newest, best, whatever, fill in the blank, clothes, car, jewelry, bag, whatever, shoes for guys, you know, all the, evidently there's a status thing with athletic shoes now. For some people, I think it's gaming. For some people, it's porn, obviously. So there's a lot of different ways you can fill. You can fill it with shopping. You can fill it with playing golf. I mean, you can fill it with things that seem a lot less harmful than than sex outside of marriage because that harms your soul um but still it's the same the issue is the same we're looking for something to fill a hole that only god can fill um is that an opportunity is that a, a way that you can raise the awareness that we all deal with this struggle at some level oh absolutely i found out years later that one of my favorite youth volunteers Uh, had had some similar experiences to me. And at first, I was kind of relieved because I thought, I'm not the only one. I just realized, hey, we've got some similarities. I'm not the only person that's had to deal with this. So I had that relief feeling, but then I got mad. Um, And I don't know any other word to call it, but I was a little bit mad because this person loved us so much, invested in our lives, spent a lot of time doing that. But in retrospect, I don't feel like they're ever completely honest. And I'm not faulting them. I'm not saying, oh, they're a bad person. But that's the fact. There were things they left out. And I think that's what drives me. And you used the word passion earlier. I think that's where that passion comes from is I don't ever want anybody to look back and say, Oh, Holly went through this, and I feel so relieved. But then stop and say, why didn't she love me enough to tell me the bad stuff, too? 
Sometimes people are uncomfortable with how open we are. Sure. And here's the thing. It's not like it's fun to, to tell all the bad things that happened to me or mistakes I made or especially in our marriage, some of the things, some of the ways that we behaved that were so unbelievably hurtful and immature. It's not fun to tell those things, but everybody has stuff. And if no one's ever willing to be honest and say, yeah, here's what I did and it was awful. And here's the, here's the consequences that I have to this day because of that, then we just leave people open to repeating the same mistakes we have made. I think what most people are going to be dealing with or most people ask themselves, especially because they're considering their own children. Mm-hmm. There's always that fear. I think most parents, an innate fear for most parents to say, uh, you know, my kids, I'm, I'm their superhero. So at mm-hmm. what point do I shatter that world and say, I'm not the perfect person you thought I was mm-hmm. because I'm afraid that's going to encourage you to be bad like me, <laughs> bad like me, or something like that. Is there a time when you start talking about uh, my own struggles? Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question, and you bring up uh, a good point in in the timing. Uh, timing is everything. There is this perception out there, particularly among parents, who want their kids to to follow a certain set of morals. That if I talk about this at all, even if it's not sharing something that's happened to me in the past, but if we talk about it at all, it's going to open Pandora's box and then my kids are going to want to know everything. And then they're going to be addicted to porn and they're going to turn into a child predator. And I mean, they just go way down the road. And then you've got people who on the other side are like, hey, nobody talked to me about anything and I don't want my kids to be in that environment. So I'm going to tell them everything way up front. And and neither one of those things is good. It's like everything else in life. There is a healthy middle ground but we tend to usually vacillate between the crazy extremes. So finding that middle ground is, I think, a very personal, it's a personal process for parents uh, together as well as individually. Now, in our family, there was a time in my adult life that I went to counseling to deal with all the stuff from my past. I, I never dealt with it, to be honest. I thought I had, but now the way I thought I had dealt with it was, yeah, that happened. That sucks. I hate it. Life is like that sometimes and too bad I'll just have to move on with it but that's not really dealing with the trauma and that's what the what's at the root of it you know with any kind of sexual brokenness is there there's a huge trauma wound there that I just thought oh well I'll just go on and live like this and it'll be fine you know I'll straighten up I'll get it together so trying to live that way didn't really work um sometime around my 30s you know, uh, between 28 and 30, it really hit me. And and I had to go back and spend some time with a therapist and actually deal with all the stuff that had happened to me. So because that happened in a house with four kids, I had to be a little bit open about it. Now, my kids were young enough at that point that I didn't share the what and the why, but we did share something along the lines of, well, you know, there's some stuff from mom's, you know, her background that's hurtful. And she's going to go talk to somebody to help her deal with that and understand it so that she can be a good mom. Uh, you know, those may not be the exact words we said, but it was something along those lines. Um, and for little kids, that's probably enough. And I would say that's way more healthy for kids to hear 
than for them to hear nothing because they already know there's something going on. So to completely ignore that, I think, is way more harmful than to give them some appropriate information. Right. Such as, you know, well, mom's having some problems with some things that were hurtful. She's going to go deal with this. Um, for Steve, it was very much the same way. You know, he, when he shares his story, can tell you more about that. But you know, we had to tell our kids something. And we tend to err on the side of something rather than nothing. So that's how... That's how we handle that. Now, as as far as when did I tell my kids the specifics of what had happened to me, that's one of those things that I was concerned about. Again, there's that that tension between I want to be authentic and I want my children to know it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail at home where the consequences are, are you know less damaging than when you're out on your own. I want them to know I'm not perfect but do I really want to tell them all this? Yeah, and there's that tension. Maybe I didn't know I wanted to. I knew I needed to. I knew that was the wisest thing to do. That was probably the healthiest thing to do and would benefit them in the long run. I was afraid to do it. So I would just, I would pray whenever I would think about it, you know, God, just let it be the right time. And whenever the right time is, just help me to know what to say. And that played out differently with all of our children. And it was never what I really thought it would look like. I think the most weird one was my daughter. And she was, you know, 12, 13 and wanting to go to somebody else's house. And it was kind of a guy that she liked and they were talking, but they you know, they were never alone together. And she didn't even have a cell phone at that point. So nothing's really going on. But she wants to go to his house alone. And, you know, Steve and I are not comfortable with that. No, well, no, you're not going to do that. Well, she's extremely independent. You know, very good leader, but as a 12 and 13 year old, that's hard to harness. And we were in Walmart and she has just given me down the road. Mom, why won't you let me go? I'm not going to do anything bad. You just don't trust me. You just want to control me. And I mean, over and over. And finally, I just stopped and looked at her and I said, Savannah, we love you. Your daddy and I love you. And yes, we trust you. It's the other people we are concerned about. Not specifically these people that you want to go over to their house, but we're concerned about other people and what they might do. Well, that's, you know, and she went on again, that was how unfair that was. And finally, I just said, Savannah, we care because this is what happened to mom. And I certainly did not intend to tell my daughter about the abuse I had suffered at the hands of a boyfriend in the shampoo aisle at Walmart. (laughs) But... That's how it happened. Yeah, And so I think you just have to be open to those. I think if I'd sat my children down, whether one at a time or all together and said, okay, listen, here's some things I need to tell you about my background and here's some, here's what happened to me and here's the effects it had. I think it would have been so awkward and so contrived that they would have, I would definitely have been uncomfortable and I'm sure they would have too. And I don't think it would have the same effect as it did when we shared with each of them just in the right circumstance. And I think with one of my sons in particular, I remember with him, it was very different. He was talking about a girl and how a guy at school, he felt like the guy was not treating her right. And I just remember knowing in my knower is how I put it that, okay, I need to talk to him about why it's so important to treat girls right. And here's the, and you never ever do anything that is remotely coercive and here's why 
from a woman's perspective. So that's just kind of how Steve and I've chosen to do that. I'm not saying that that is the way to do it, but you know, I would always err on something rather than nothing. Sure. And I don't feel like any of what I said ever gave my child the impression that they could then go out and, and do, because you know, what we all fear is that your child is going to somehow get the message. Oh, mom did whatever she wanted to in high school. And then she straightened up later. So it's okay to go do that. You know, that's, I think, kind of the fear we have. I don't think that's reality at all. So standing in the shopping in the shampoo aisle in Walmart, (laughs) you tell Savannah, here's what happened. Right. What does she do? How does she respond? She got very quiet, Um, which if you knew her (laughs) at that age was not common. Uh, She just stopped. She just looked at me and I said, Something like, this is not really how I planned to tell you this, but, you know, I had a lot more freedom way too early than we're giving you, and here are the consequences, and here are the way that has that affected me as a wife, here's the way that affected my marriage, and here's the way that affected me as a mom, and I don't ever want you to, to deal with that. With Savannah, um, she's a lot more like Steve. I'm super open. And they play things a little closer to the chest. So she didn't have a lot to say. But reading her demeanor, she was very affected by it. I don't recall having to have that conversation again with, uh, well, you know, why won't you let me do this? You just, you know, you don't trust me. There were times as she got older and a teen, you know, that we would have to revisit things like, you know what? We're just not okay with you doing that yet. Mm-hmm. And we trust you and we love you. And that's why we're setting this boundary so that one day you'll succeed. Um, but I don't, I don't remember her having a whole lot to say. She was very affected. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, not that this one incident defines, defines a person forever or even right. this, uh, mm-hmm. this conversation. But uh, you did mention you, your whole goal in everything that you've done is to set her up for success. You want to talk mm-hmm. just give me 30 seconds about where she is today. Where is she doing now? Oh, that <laughs> there is hope. If you're a mom out there with a super strong-willed daughter who from birth just seems to know they want to do things their own way, take heart. <laughs> they turn into excellent adults <laughs> because that very strong-willed, um, high-drive-to-lead child who I sometimes thought we would not both live through parenting – uh, one or the other of us would not make it. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't sure which one it was going to be. Uh, she is now a missionary. Tell me a little bit about, you go out and you and you you talk to, what kind of groups of people do you talk to? What are the topics that you're covering? And is this one of those stories that you share on a regular basis when you're speaking? When Steve and I speak together, we do what's called a relationship workshop. It's not solely based on marriage. There have been a couple of times we've churches have specifically asked, hey, we want you to come in and do a marriage weekend. Because the principles we share are about relationships in general, whether it's, you know, parent, child, Mm. friends, or spouse. So when we talk together, we both share our own story. A couple of times I've spoken to groups of women, and I think only one that I've specifically shared this story in a very um, much abbreviated version, just a very small blip. What is it um, when you do share this story, when, when when you focus in, when you come hone in on this story a little bit, what is it that you want someone to take away from it? I think there are a few things, particularly if I'm speaking to not necessarily just teenagers, but teenagers, young adults who find themselves in 
some part of my story because I know it happens a lot. I want them to know that they, first of all, are not alone. Uh, They don't have to feel like a failure and go to bed hating themselves and crying like I did so much of the time. That they're, you know, they're not alone, that there is hope, and that if if they have been a victim, they don't have to continue to live that way. I hear a lot, I get questions quite often about, how did you resolve this? Because it doesn't sound like you ever went back and pursued, you know, legal action or ever confronted, you know, your, your abuser. And I didn't, uh, as an adult, I, I weighed that and I didn't see, I didn't see the usefulness at that time. Now I'm not saying that everybody else has to come to that same conclusion. I think that's a very personal decision. And for me, I prayed a lot about it. Steve and I talked about it. That's where I, I landed, but I still had to learn how to forgive because any moment that I'm not forgiving him, he's still controlling my life and I'm still choosing to be a victim. And I let so many years be stolen by this person that I don't ever want another moment of my life to be stolen or controlled by somebody else's actions. So forgiveness is a huge thing to me. And I hope people hear that and not forgiving him because I think he deserves it or what he did really wasn't that bad. I'm not minimizing any of that at all. It was awful, but it was also a sin, just like I sin every day. Now, sins have different consequences, but I can't, as a believer, uh, put any more weight on his sin than I can mine. It's between him and God at this point. Uh, I hope, you know, I hope he's made that right. I, I don't know. I'm to a place where I feel like it's really not my business. Um, It took me a long time to get there. So I don't say that flippantly like, oh, you just kind of get over it and just let God deal with him. I'm not saying that at all. It it took a lot of work and a lot of years. And I think that's an extremely important piece for people to get is that at some point you have to let go of it for your own well-being because you will continue to be enslaved if you don't. So someone's out there, mm-hmm. um, uh, a young woman, a young mm-hmm. mother, a, an older woman mm-hmm. who has lived your story, mm-hmm. who's been on the receiving end of, of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that person? I think, first of all, I would say, you know, again, they're not alone. It, it happens to more people than I would like to admit. But secondly, they are worth the process it takes to deal with it. They are worth it. I think that's a hard concept for people to buy. I remember the moment that I went to see a therapist and I explained to her what was going on in my life. And I had always had these crazy, crazy dreams. And we're not talking about like I'm floating through the sky and then a unicorn comes by and I can, you know, be like Superman, not just silly dreams. They were very anxiety inducing dreams. Somebody was chasing me, but they never could quite catch me and I couldn't get away. Or no matter how fast I swam, I couldn't get to one of my children floating face down in a pool drowning. I mean, those are the kinds of dreams I had on an ongoing basis. And I didn't realize that was not normal because, again, for all of my adult life, that's what I dealt with. There was a huge uptick in those before I went to get help. They got a lot more vivid They were more common. I would go to bed at night, have crazy dreams like that all night long and wake up feeling like I had not slept. 
so I went to see a therapist and I explained to her what was going on. I told her about my past and she said, well, I think you have a problem, Holly. I think you have delayed post-traumatic stress. This is, these are the kinds of things that happen when you've tried to bury something like that, a very traumatic event, and it's very normal and we can work through this. I think it, that's what it is. And I simultaneously felt relieved because I kind of felt like I might be losing my mind. But I was also very scared because I had four kids at home and I didn't know, okay, if I open Pandora's box of all this hurt that I've just been dragging around behind me, how's that going to affect my life? What if I turn into a crazy mom or what if I take it out on my kids or what if my husband is upset and can't deal with it? I had all that fear. You're worth it. It doesn't matter. The truth is... You will wind up being a better mom if you hang in there with the pain and you face it. You'll be a better mom and you'll be a better wife. And you'll probably find that maybe for the first time in your life, you actually have a good grasp on who you are as a person. And with that, we're going to wrap up our conversation with Holly. Thank you so much for coming by. And that's going to close out our second episode of the Ultimate Escape Podcast. If you missed the first edition, you can find it on our website at podcast.ultimateescape.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast at several locations around the Internet, including Google Play Music. Simply head over to Google Play Music, search for Ultimate Escape, and click on the subscribe button. The first few podcasts we're going to be dropping online, of course, include the story of Holly and Steve, as well as their story together, their marriage, and what eventually led them to found Ultimate Escape. Then we'll be adding podcasts about once a week, so make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any episodes as they're added along the way. I'm David Chenault. This is the Ultimate Escape Podcast. Thanks for joining us.